Hey folks, it's How to Be a Whole Person Part 5, and this one is called Connection, which is a bit of a buzzword in our culture, but for good reason. You know, Brene Brown said, connection is why we're here. It's what gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And you know if Brene Brown said it, it's true. I mean, come on. I've, I've come to see this more and more, how true it is that for all humans everywhere, connection is our bigger purpose. And so what I want to do today is to help us to see that this runs far deeper than most of us are aware, that this is ultimately what drives you as a human, and that is a good thing. So I want to start by talking about oyster moms and then why doctors get sued and then how we make rules and why marriages last and why kids act like feral animals. And I want to tie it all together with a little bit of spiritual uh, wisdom. So we've got all kinds of good stuff. So here we go. Uh, Number one, I want to start here. We are animals. Now, if you've heard the earlier episodes, you already know that I've said this, but it's true and it's really important for us to acknowledge that 100% of your body and your brain and all of your physicality and mind is animal body and science clearly backs that up. We share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, so much so that not only are chimpanzees our closest relatives, but we are their closest relatives. Let that one sink in. Now, that bothers people quite a bit, and I'm glad it bothers you because I don't want to be just another animal either. You know, there's a classical Christian view that so much of our our Western culture is built on, and especially the Christian world, that we are the image bearers of the divine God. But I want you to think about that in a new way. It's actually the people who refuse to acknowledge their animal nature, who are controlled by it the most, and who in turn act the most like the other animals because that which we are the least aware of has the power to control us the most. Uh, Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament of the Bible, calls it the sarks or the flesh. It's our animal nature that is within every one of us. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it says we were created from the same material and on the same day as the other land animals. So the Bible never actually tried to hide that fact. And it's time that we bring it to the forefront again. Now, all animals are on a spectrum from R-selected to K-selected in biology. Okay, Go back to like ninth grade biology class or whatever. Uh, so if you've got frogs, turtles, termites, like any animal that has a ton of babies and they don't care for them at all, they just kind of let them fend for themselves, those are called R-selected. Now, at the extreme end of our selected is the American oyster. This lady lays about 500 million eggs a year, and only a couple of them will actually make it to be living, functioning, reproducing adult oysters. So you think you're a bad mom? 
This girl raises two functioning adults and the other 499,999,998 of her kids literally die before adulthood. So if you're one of those suburban moms that's like worried that Child Protective Service is going to peg you for not strapping in your kids to back up to the mailbox, like you could be an oyster, okay? Just saying. They are, are selected. Now, you go to like bigger animals dogs they may have on an average three or four puppies per mom per year and the moms take care of them and then you keep going on the spectrum bears might have one per year where are humans on the spectrum we are an extreme k-selected species the most so of any major animal on the planet which means that we have the fewest offspring the highest success rate like almost all of us live which means that we require a very stable environment and we are the most expensive offspring in the animal world. We have globally right now about four kids on average for a 70-year lifespan. And if you're in like, you know, this this the subspecies whitest suburbananus, you have like 1.4 kids and you're going to live to be like 95 years old. You're ridiculous, okay? Um, <laughs> come on, that was funny. It takes about 18 to 22 years to just raise a kid, right? 20 plus years just to teach a little human how to be a big functioning human. We have to cram so much love and knowledge and transformation and discipline into our kids that we sit them in schools for hours a day just to form their brains so that they can be a good big human one day. We are spending all of this time energy and money to develop our kids brains for a purpose so I work in the craft of teaching which is essentially my job is to line up a bunch of kids brain synapses in certain patterns right job done I'm successful I lined up their brain synapses and so the human brain doesn't stop developing until about 24 25 years old it is an amazing commitment that humans have to growing one another so if you thought your kids were really expensive and sucking the life out of you you actually have science to back you up but here's what I'm finding out that ultimately everything we are pouring into our kids is an attempt to teach them how to connect and interact with the humans around them. Because no matter how badly you want to be John Wayne, you know, like some loner who's self-sufficient, doesn't need anybody to be bad, like you are not supported by the fact that you use technology to listen to this podcast, right? If you want to be a good human, the way to do that is to connect with other humans in a meaningful way and give back to them. How you connect with others is ultimately how humanity decides if you are a good human or a bad human. <laughs> we are the most socially complex animals on earth because of all this. We can stay in some sort of meaningful relationship with about 150 others at a time. So we are born into a social context. And when you're born, your brain isn't finished growing. 
you have to get out of your mama, and if your head was any bigger, it wouldn't fit. Can I get an amen from some mamas out there? So when your brain, when you're born, your brain isn't really ready for life yet. You are not April the giraffe who's going to get up and run after an hour of being in the outside world. Like you just had to come out of your mom mid development, and the brain figures it's going to have to keep going, developing on the outside. So the basics of our personality are not fully set in place until we are close to a year old. Fascinatingly, by the time you are a year old, you have developed a basic personality that will be more or less the same throughout your entire life. We call it your attachment style. It's how you connect with other human beings. It has everything to do with how you look people in the eye, how you open up to people, how you might avoid other people, whether or not you can hold down a consistent relationship. Now, a lot of people are mistaken thinking that since their kids seem to have a personality from the time they began to talk and make faces, that it was some sort of like just innate seed that was in them, some sort of magical, genetic, or otherwise God-given personality that was just sort of there hidden inside. But the science isn't backing that up. Science is showing us that our personality, while some of it has genetic and epigenetic components to it, is forged in the earliest years of life, even down to the womb. Now, all animals develop within their context. Take a zebra. Paint we always look at a zebra and we say, how, how does a zebra know which other zebra is like his mama? As if we couldn't tell if we were there in the herd all day long. But, but if you paint a wall with black and white stripes, a zebra is probably going to go walk and stand next to it. That's true. Because if there's one thing a zebra is good at, it's finding them daggum black and white stripes. Like zebras are black and white stripe maniacs. Now, you and I develop within our context, and you know what we're really awesome at that you knew, but you really didn't know that you knew? We are facial recognition maniacs. I mean, come on, you knew that, right? Like, did you know that other animals can't recognize our faces? Like, your dog gets confused if you come in in a costume, even if he can see your face, because he doesn't do faces. But we can tell apart, like, almost every other human on the planet just based on their face from one another. Now, there is this tiny part of the human brain. It's in your right hemisphere where your emotions are regulate are connected to mostly. It's in a region called the posterior superior temporal sulcus. And its entire job is facial recognition. Like you take this out and you can no longer identify people based on their face. It's like the size of a marble or slightly larger. And that its entire job is to be able to read faces. And here's what's more fascinating than that. How did that part of our brains develop and become so finely tuned? It did it post-womb. Like you had to train it by staring at faces. At one face in particular, the most, your mom's, dad's. Uh, when when you naturally, I guess that was two faces, but when you naturally pick up a baby and you stare into their eyes, you are training them to be a good human because you're showing them. That's why we make these exaggerated facial expressions. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're training our kids to read facial expressions, which is huge for a human. This is what facial expressions mean. 
So an infant is learning from you. When you pick them up, you hold them close to your face and you do the little googly-eyed boo-boo baba thing. Not, like, do you do that to your nine-year-old? I mean, I do, but that's because I'm an awkward dad. But I mean, really, it is completely natural to train our babies. And so today, you're 40 years old. Your coworker gives you that look. You know what I'm talking about? And you immediately have a spike in blood pressure. <laughs> like, it's those times when you wish you were a dog and you could be ignorant to it. Your wife rolls her eyes. I mean, mine doesn't, but yours might roll her eyes. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So your brain is doing some amazingly complex math. You ever thought about how small the little facial features are on somebody's face that actually tell us the difference between if they're mad or sad or scared or whatever? So you're doing some amazing math to be able to figure out that somebody's not happy with you. Now, your brain has some cells called mirror neurons. Their entire job is to essentially download other people's facial expressions and mirror them. So this is why one study showed that like the longer you are married to someone, and we're talking decades, 30, 40 years, the more you begin to actually look like that person, which is bad news for my wife, because you've been mimicking their facial expressions for decades without even realizing it. There are certain people who have a disorder that we call autism. And autism, among other things that it does, essentially means that your mirror neurons aren't firing for some reason or are inhibited. You are lacking the perception of reading other people's facial expressions and mirroring that with your own. People with autism struggle with connection that is hardwired into most of us. And it's why you can also look at a two, three-year-old child. You can give them a facial expression. If you know that child, if they mirror that back to them, to you quickly and easily and, and with great exaggeration, that's a really good indicator that that child is well attached and is trained at some level in order to see faces. You can tell lots of things at a very young age. Now that's your sense of sight. Uh, it is built entirely around that first thing that you recognize, which is your mom's face. Your sense of vision is literally built on it. Your sense of hearing, the next thing. It's developed by listening to two things, mainly the rhythm of your mom's heartbeat and your mama's voice, right? That and some gurgling intestines, which is probably why we still like Halloween is 2017. Um, <laughs> But your, your hearing is literally designed for the reception of a human's voice. Humans' voices co-evolved with hearing and are literally, they are literally designed for each other. Your ears and another human's voice. If you are a healthy child raised in a healthy home, you learn to associate a voice with the fulfillment of your needs. And not just a voice, but vocal tones as well. Did you know that we are experts at deciphering tones of voice and vocal modulation? And did you know that in that last sentence I just said, my voice jumped up and down through over a three-octave range? I mean, seriously, my voice in one sentence, it just modulated up to like Justin Timberlake pitch and all the way down to a bass note in one sentence. And you didn't even pick up on it or wouldn't have. I was just talking. Because we have been trained from birth to listen to so much more than words in communication. It's like a music that comes out of our mouths. Otherwise, we sound like the robots, right? So you're modulating your voice 
all the time. Where did you learn that expertise from? From birth. You started with the voice of the people who take care of us, and you separated it from strangers. And then a one-year-old child, by the time they're one, they don't even know our language yet. But they know there's their mother's voice and her intentions by her tone. We learn tone before we even learn what the words mean that go along with that tone, which is why it tends to have more of an impact than the words that are actually being said. There was one study that was done that showed one-year-olds responded to the same way no matter what language their mother was speaking in. They had a mother speak in English and in Greek that the baby had never heard, and they responded the same way regardless of what was being said. And so Malcolm Gladwell has in his book Blink, he describes a study that was done by some medical researchers, and what they did was they took some content-filtered audio recordings of conversations between doctors and patients. So they they took essentially uh, four 10-second clips from a doctor and his patient or her patient they were talking to one another and just by like taking and tweaking the audio where they couldn't actually tell what was being said but they could still hear the tone of voice they could in 40 seconds predict with high accuracy whether that doctor would get sued because people's tone of voice expresses so much and and you kind of knew this it's why when somebody says something in one tone sometimes we do a double take and we say okay what did what did you mean by that because maybe their tone didn't make sense with their words right so facial expressions and vocal modulations are ingrained in us at such a deep level we are all operating out of these but we have forgotten this in our logic driven culture and in all of these things we are striving to connect. Now, move to your other senses as well. Uh, move on to your smell. Your sense of smell developed by smelling your mama's amniotic fluid and her milk. You can tell the difference in the smell of your mom's milk and another mom's milk at two weeks after birth. And so it is with your sense of taste, mother's milk. So what about your touch? Developed from being coddled, pampered, touched mostly by mom and dad. And so all of the ways that we take in and sense the world and everything that we're striving for to take in is all built on a foundation of the most important thing, which is we connected with another human being from the earliest of days. If you've ever taken a child with some sort of attachment disorder or worked in the public school with kids with attachment disorders, and there are lots of them, you know full well what I mean when you say some kids have touch regulation issues or when they have smell aversions. So what happens later in life, if you aren't appropriately attached as an infant to your caregivers, you can develop sensory processing disorder uh, which a ton of our kids have, and it's spectral, okay, it's on a spectrum, but essentially your body's senses are all out of whack because they were not regulated by connection with another human being, and it affects everything. So listen, here, here's what all of this means, and this is what I'm getting to. The foundation of your physicality develops within a framework of attachment and connection. So to be a healthy human means to be attached. By the time you are one, 
we can do a five-minute observation of you and know your attachment style, which is how you will relate to people when you're 70 based on your brain and how it formed during your first year of life. Now, the great the great thing about this is that it can change, but the thing about it is that most people won't change it. Um, we, we can place everybody on a, a quadrant of attach, attachment styles from secure to amb, ambivalent to avoidant to disorganized. And what we're finding out is that kids with attachment uh, issues like disorganized attachment or in extreme cases, reactive attachment disorder, those kids have an extremely difficult time navigating life. They are much, much, much more likely to commit violent crimes, to become addicts, to not be able to hold down jobs, to be able to hold down steady long-term relationships. And it's not that you're helpless if you're uh, past the age of one, but it does become more difficult, like I said. And here's the thing. Most of the rest of society doesn't know how to cope with you, and so they tend to add fuel to that fire. So like well-meaning adults actually help kids spiral down those paths quite often. That's an entire another, entire other podcast. But if you want a quick insight of that, uh, there's a, a good intro video you can Google. It's uh, Conscious Discipline, How to Make a Bully from Scratch. And it kind of outlines how kids that are born with attachment issues, if we don't connect with them and sacrifice to connect with them, then we're going to help just lead them down that road by trying to punish it out of them and try to do all sorts of things to like correct them and fix them. Um, and so really what I want to say here is that not only is how we attach a huge part of how we react to the human race and how it reacts to us, but how we attach is ultimately how we judge humans to be good or bad and what value we tend to place on them. It also affects everything about our daily interactions. So go with me to the public schools. Uh, think about how we interact with kids. A kid yells at me, I don't have to do what you say. What would you do? <laughs> what if they slammed their binder down and they screamed, I hate this class. I'm not doing this stuff. Now, throw that one over to the comment feeds and see what you get. Like, oh my goodness. Like, if you want to ask what would we do with a kid with a respect issue like that, we would jump all over that. Like, every adult has an opinion. And they would be on a spectrum of, oh, you take them out and whoop them to you just needs medication to listen to his heart and be sweet and kind to him. But really... Let's go beneath that. Here's my question. Why did the human race decide that a, a kid yelling at me, I hate you and I'm not doing this, why was that bad? And why is that bad? I, I agree that it's bad, but why? I mean, a lot of kids don't like my class. They just don't say it out loud. And to be frank, a lot of kids don't do my work. <laughs> so we judge so much by their vocal modulation and their tone, and we decide that this kid is dis respectful. So what in the world does that mean? I mean, seriously, what does it mean that humans insist that their kids are respectful to us? And, and why, why are we trying to ingrain that within them? When you get to the root of it, any behavior that we deem inappropriate or think we need to fix is essentially a human not showing empathy for another human. I can't get my kids to talk to me, or I can't let my kids talk to me like that because they have to understand their place in the human system. 
and how they're going to function in it. They have to understand that I'm a human too, and I just sacrificed a bunch for them, and they need to have empathy for their caregivers because not everybody's going to do that in return for them one day. They're going to have to take care of other people, and I want them to respect me, and respect is a human construct that we've created to show empathy to one another because empathy makes us good humans who can connect. A good human, as society judges, is a connected human who has empathy for others. Think about all of the rules that we've made for our world. Traffic lights. Empathy. Whisper when you're in the library. Empathy. Violent crime laws. Empathy. (laughs) Nepotism policies. Empathy. Tax codes, empathy, ah, the banning of Napster, oh, empathy. Yes, 1999, 2000, those were the greatest years of the internet because it meant free music for all. And I had a T1 line in my college dorm room. Dorm room. Those were the years. Um, but there were some music producers going like, um, guys, are, are we working for free? And they had the money, so they won, which happens. I miss you, 1999. Um, somebody somewhere needs to not be taken advantage of, not be shoved out of the human race, not have their energy stolen from them, to not be ignored, but to be helped, to be encouraged, to be seen. That's where social regulations and rules and policies and procedures come from. Something was a problem for someone violating their freedom or their boundaries, and other people recognize it and say, no, it's not okay to ignore the humanity of these people because we are a human race that is fundamentally striving towards greater empathy. Now, Everything I've said should bring up all kinds of questions and challenges to our inherited notions in the Western world of morality and how we treat other people and how we bring justice. It was deeply troubling to me as one who is training and raising kids every day with attachment issues who from their first year of life never had the chance to connect with a human race like I did because of something that happened early on. And then to discover that basically all standards of morality come from our desire to connect, it really throws a wrench in things if you are fundamentally handicapped in the area of connection, and a lot of people are. Um, A lot of teachers joke, but not so jokingly, that we can almost always spot the kids who are headed to jail, right? You can spot them in second grade, sometimes in kindergarten, especially if you know their family background. There was a famous marshmallow experiment decades ago in Stanford that tested three-year-olds with a simple task. Sit in a room alone with a marshmallow for 15 minutes, and you, you can either eat it, and that's your marshmallow, or you can not eat it, and you can get two at the end of that 15 minutes, And so the experiment turned out to be very good at predicting that those kids who waited for an extra marshmallow would be successful later in adulthood. That's with a three-year-old. Now, you say, what does that have to do with connection? I mean, that sounds more like self-discipline. And it is, but where does self-discipline come from? Self-discipline happens within a three-year-old because of connection. 
connection gives you a sense of security as a framework for your entire life that enables you to be able to wait for the marshmallow. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you know it's going to end well and you feel secure in that because you live in a predictable world where your needs are always met, that gives you all kinds of freedom in the present to make sacrifices. Like, have you ever recorded uh, like a football game and then accidentally found out the score but you still watched it on the DVR or whatever? If, if you know your team won, nothing that happens in the game is going to upset you or shake you up or rile you up too much because you know the end result. So you can laugh off an interception and not get stressed out about it because you know that you won. Well, this is sort of like self-discipline. It's rooted in the security and the sense of purpose that came from connection that says, you know what, it's going to be okay no matter what because I, I began my life on this foundation of connection. And the hard part about this is if you know your team lost, then like no matter how many good things happen within that game, you're not ever going to be able to be happy because you know that in the end they lost. And that's the way so many kids feel who didn't develop within a healthy framework of connection. They feel like everything is a losing game. And that's not something that just happens in the first year of life. I know I've talked a lot about the first year, but it happens throughout all of our childhood and it goes with us through adulthood. And so, so often, um, so often we have kids like at school uh, who have who have suffered neglect. I've got a couple that um, have suffered ne- severe neglect the first years of their lives who have uh, reactive attachment disorder, which is a, a, an extreme form of attachment disorder. One of them uh, very badly. And so if you ask me what are they like, well, in short, they're basically like feral animals. Um, I mean, especially earlier on, they're, they're improving quite a bit right now. Uh, but almost like no self-discipline, um, outbursts of anger, laying on the floor, screaming, crying, almost no emotional regulation, inability to perceive emotions and facial expressions. Um, these are extreme cases of neglect and abandonment, but uh, we're all on a spectrum. This is not a yes-no, black-white ordeal. So like, th- th- the less connected you are, the more like an animal you're going to act. So so often when we punish people and we ostracize people for not having a foundational sense of security in their lives, it actually is adding fuel to the fire. It disconnects them even more. You are accusing them and they don't want to hear it like anybody. You don't want to hear it and, and they will withdraw even further. You talk to a parent of any child with an attachment disorder, and they're going to confirm this to you, that no amount of spanking punishment or withholding something from a kid who has an attachment uh, problem will ever help fix that. The good news is that with intentional efforts in therapy, your brain is plastic and changeable. And if you're interested in that and, and how that works, there's a great book I cannot recommend enough. It's called The Connected Child by Dr. Karen Purvis, and that will get you started down that road. But um, I'm not going there, what I, what I want to do is just take a ton of research I've read over the years and done by lots of different people and just sort of boil it down to my own synopsis. How do you parent someone with a lack of connection hardwired in their brain? How do you live with someone who is fundamentally at a loss for connection, whether it happened early in their childhood or just later in life and they find themselves in this lonely, depressed place? How do you deal with people like that? Sacrifice. <laughs> Connect with them. And that's going to take sacrifice, big time. Uh, now, most of you aren't parenting 
a kid with an extreme attachment disorder, uh, and a lot of you aren't even parents at all, a lot of you aren't even married, but if you want to connect with somebody who is at a loss for connection, whether it's more of a foundational thing in their life or whether that's something where they just find themselves in a really lonely place and they find themselves in depression, you're going to have to pour some of your soul into that person if if you love them. So um, a, a few practical implications of all of this, and then I want to close with a, a spiritual word. Uh, so number one, so if uh, connection is such a huge part of being human, then can, then can we quit trading it for other cheaper stuff? Like we avoid people like the plague sometimes, don't we? Like quit avoiding people. Um, connection is hard, but it is so worth it. Uh, think about social media. Uh, is it really that social? I mean, like, if all of the things that I described from people's smell to their uh, physical touch to just their facial expressions, all of that impacts your interaction with them, how much of that do you really get online? Like, you're being fooled into thinking that you get all of that, like 10%, 5%, 1%, I don't know. We are connection-starved, and I do know that. As a culture, it is starving us. Face-to-face, in-person communication is still unrivaled. You ever thought about why a businessman or businesswoman would fly all the way across the world to meet with somebody in another country for a couple of hours over a multi-million dollar deal? It's because it's worth it. It's because if something's that big of a deal, it's worth being in person for. You cannot compete with face-to-face in-person communication and I feel like at times we've been priced out of it like it's a luxury haven't we like it's a luxury for a a family with young kids to get together with their friends but it's worth the cost so do it every chance you get don't fill your calendar with stuff you think might make you happy just connect with some people around you the closest people around you Um, number two just look at people I mean, seriously, if you're a parent, look your kids in the eyes like every day. When people are talking to you, seriously, look at them. If you're a spouse, look at people. There was one study where they tracked openings between people. So essentially, like if you make a cry for attention to your spouse, I mean, it could be something really simple, like you just want to tell them a story or you want to uh, maybe complain to them or whatever. You're trying to tell them something. And if they open up to you and look at you and accept what you're saying and embrace it, if that's the norm in your house, then you are much, much more likely to stay married for the long term than a couple who doesn't turn toward one another and who shuts one another off or ignores their cries for some sort of attention or conversation. So like you could take also like the thin slicing just like a couple minute interactions and exchanges between spouses and you can see in there and you can also make highly accurate predictions as to who's going to stay together just based on how much they turn and look at each other when the other person is talking. If your spouse is trying to talk to you uh, and you acknowledge empathy, then you're opening up for connection. I mean, seriously, (laughs) think about this. If you look at people when they talk, if you smile and you listen to what they're saying, and you use adverbs when they're when they speak, uh, or <laughs> when you speak, you use adverbs and you speak clearly. <laughs> uh, 
you're going to be somebody who's almost impossible to fire at work. Your customers will like you. Your patients won't sue you. Um, it takes energy, but it's energy well spent. I recently stopped by a friend's house, and he's like the most congenial, friendly, genuine person I've ever met. He's like ridiculously friendly. And I just thought about leaving after I left his house because I just stopped by. It was nighttime. And I was like, man, how in the world does this guy treat everybody so well? I would be so drained. And I asked his best friend later on, we were just in conversation, I said, I don't know how that guy does it all the time. And his friend said, well, he goes to bed at 9 o'clock every night. <laughs> it wears him out. Uh, number three, be vulnerable and honest because connection is all about connecting the deepest parts of you to others in a healthy context. And we're going to talk about boundaries next episode, but be open and most of all, be honest and be willing to put yourself out there and be vulnerable and take the lead in that if you find yourself in a social context and it allows other people to get something from you because they want to be honest and open as well so be vulnerable uh number four share stories oh my goodness we have lost this in our culture a good connector is a good storyteller And if you think you're not a good storyteller, it's because as a lifestyle, you haven't been vulnerable. No no blame on whose fault that is, but you just haven't been. Because we all have good stories. I mean, nobody has like better stories than somebody else for the most part. We just can tell them with a little bit more vulnerability sometimes. Uh, I heard of a study one time, and I can't find it, but I was told... I was told this years ago uh, on another podcast and uh, somebody had studied all the different ways you can bond with your kids and they said that the number one activity that you can do to create a good bond and attachment between your older kids and yourself is to relate stories of your own childhood to them. Just tell them stories about when you were a kid. And so I've been doing that for years now. And so at least like uh, probably five nights a week, my kids will ask me, can you can you tell me a story about when you were a kid? And it's one of the sweetest, most amazing experiences that I've had as a dad because they think these stories are larger than life. And to me, they're just, they're just life. That's just what happened. But when you do that, you're connecting to them and saying, you know what? You know where you're at? You know, you're five. I was there too. I, I I was in the same spot. You you know you're gonna make it. You're gonna you're gonna survive all of the stuff that you're going through as a five year old, because you're you're one of us, and this is what we do. So share stories, share stories with your kids, share stories with people at work, and and uh, share them with great detail. Um, people in the older people in my family, they would come from a really rural family, and I, I've just I've got some very uneducated people in my family, but they're amazing storytellers. They will say like every detail as they're you're just talking about a story. They'll they'll tell you every every little detail from that person leaned over like this, and then they looked me in the eye and they put their hand on their chin and they rolled back their you know and like. It's probably not all accurate, but it's okay because it makes a good story. Share stories with other people is an awesome way to connect. So in closing, I started with episode one, talking about connecting to that spirit deep down inside of yourself to your emotions and I said that you have a greater purpose and that greater purpose happens through connection to the outside world. Now, if you connect to yourself well, and you connect to the outside world well, you are a whole 
person and your sacrifice will not go unnoticed by a human population starving for connection to something real. Jesus of Nazareth, the single most influential human to ever live, so far as we can tell, had a great pattern for his life. He started his ministry by going out into the desert for 40 days by himself. Why? To connect. Uh, to, to connect to himself, to connect to a greater purpose. We might say that divine breath that is within him, that spark that is within inside of his soul. Deep, deep down, when you get out in the quiet and you explore your own emotions, you connect with who you are and your identity and where you've came from, then you can be ready to connect to other people in the world. And so he went back into the world and he connected with other people. And then he had this pattern of going back and forth. It says oftentimes he would retreat to lonely places and pray. So he doesn't forget who he is. And then he would go back and he would spend time with sick people and poor people. And he would heal people and he would preach good news to people. And then they asked him, what are the two greatest commands? Or they asked him, what is the greatest command? And he gave them two greatest commands. And they said, what's the greatest command? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's love the Lord your God. I mean, that was in their culture, in their, in their law. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God. Well, what does that mean to love a God that you can't touch, to love a God that is just sort of out there or in here or wherever? I, I think it looks a lot like loving that divine breath that is within each and every one of us and the nature that is all around us in the creation, the world that is all around us. And then he said something else. And the second command, they didn't ask him for a second, but he said it. The second command is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love other people, to connect deep within and to connect without. That is the purpose of our lives connection okay so here's the deal I've got one more podcast coming up uh, it's on boundaries uh, because if we're gonna connect to other people the world will always take everything they can from us have you noticed so how do we become people who do connect and pour out our lives without having the entire world rob us of our souls okay that's what the next episode is about and I wanted to end there but as I was preparing for this one I'm realizing that I haven't even mentioned addiction <laughs> which is huge in all of this it's the opposite of connection I've got a lot of good material on it but I haven't assembled it together uh, and I'm thinking kind of like if you want me to do one on addiction uh, I don't I don't have a clue who's listening to this podcast and uh, or how many people or anything so if like if you want me to do on addiction, uh, just send me a, a note because uh, I've, I've got a little bit of time coming up, but I wasn't going to use it for podcasting, but um, I'll, I'll think about it. I, I've really, this one's big to me and I think it could be big for a lot of other people. There's so much good stuff out there on addiction. So feel free, message me um, or Facebook, whatever, get in, get in touch with me and let me know. Or if you're somebody who doesn't even know me, uh, leave a little review on iTunes or whatever and just uh, say, hey, uh, let's do one on addiction and I'll be glad to do that. If I don't hear from anybody, I won't do one on addiction. Uh, but if I do, uh, then I'll probably try to get that together for you guys. Thank you for listening. Love you guys.